Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Funderberg. I am joined by today by frequent guest, Martin Kessler. How are you doing today, Martin? Excellent. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes. And this conversation, this podcast is a little different than what we normally do on the show where we talk about one movie or one filmmaker or one book normally. Uh, This is a little more in the same vein as the Unfinished Masterpieces episode that you and I did uh, over the summer where using Kafka's The Trial as a jumping off point to talk about great unfinished artworks and what an artwork means to be finished or unfinished and that sort of thing. Um, This this episode is happening, and as it developed, we'll talk about some of the problems that arose after I said, hey, I had this idea, you want to do it, and you said yes to it. But you, I saw you tweet that um, the difference to you between Necromantic, right, uh, and Necromantic 2, the famous shock horror movies from the mid 80s although i find that director interesting uh, that the difference between necromantic one and necromantic two is the difference between art and trash right okay you've seen both of these movies right correct and i instantly knew what you were talking about and what you meant (laughs) did you know which one i was referring to as art and which one i wasn't yes because the second one is art yes yes the second one is is much more interesting when you first pitched this episode, you said maybe we should talk about Necromantic and Necromantic 2 based on the tweet. And I was like, uh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but then after after reading the short story and watching the episode that we're going to be discussing, I was like, oh, that, that makes way more sense why you would pitch that connection. They, they actually have a lot more in common than I would have expected. But uh, like for me, Necromantic 2, it's this like, oh, it's about trying to possess somebody and objectifying them and the unsustainability of all that. And there's all these ideas and themes. And then the first Necromantic, I'm like, I think this movie's literally about fucking a corpse. <laughs> like, that's, yes. that's what the movie is about. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, he's an interesting director. Have you seen yes. uh, Jorg uh, but, Butgerite's other movies? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, I think I've seen two of his other early 90s ones uh they're he's like a, uh what's it a, called they're todes king and uh shram i can never I remember seen, the uh, names of the german angst, yeah. but I, I know he has a couple more recent movies yeah um he's he's much more of like in a dark art auteur he's much more of a gasper noe than a simple shock hard director. He's not uh, Duodata or something like that. He's not Lucio Fulci. He's somebody who's actually interested, I think, in like dark stuff. And the first Necromantic feels like him just kind of making a movie to try and have a hit or be shocking. It doesn't feel very thought through. And then the second one feels like I can use exploitation cinema to explore the stuff I'm doing in my more serious art type movies. Right. Exactly. I think also too, like he must've been pretty young when he made the first necromantic film. Like I, I'm not quite sure how he, how old he is now, but like, he doesn't seem so old that like the, the this well film, yeah yeah he was born it, it in 63 like, and it was made in 88 so he's like yeah, 25 this, this years feels old. like somebody who's in their mid-20s who wants to make something shocking and get attention and yeah and then maybe after that reconsidering what he can actually express with that that format that subject matter 
that medium because it, it's fascinating how Necromantic 2 is almost like a not not even like a remake it's almost like a redo of the, the first movie but <laughs> it's like okay here like I, I do actually have something to say is a little bit like how that feels yeah it's like the anti funny games movies where he remakes funny games Haneke exactly the same in his own words because he had expressed himself perfectly in his mind <laughs> it's the uh it's the opposite of that where he goes oh let me do the same thing but actually express myself and my interests and my thoughts these times and since this is the thing I can get funding for I'll use it to talk about this other stuff but so I the idea I had when I read that tweet I had just like that day or maybe the day before happened to read Patricia Highsmith's short story, The Stuff of Madness, right? It's in her short 1985 short story collection, Mermaids on the Golf Course. And this um, short story is very similar to a Tales from the Crypt episode called Collection Completed. Now, it's not similar in, in the style of like plagiarism in some way. It's not like Fassbender's Martha and the, the Colonel Walsh source story for the rest of her life where you read it and you go, oh, he plagiarized this and famously, you know, gets sued and loses for plagiarism with it. Um, or the bizarre Dorothy Parker short story where uh, she plagiarizes Lolita but gets it into publication before Lolita is published because she's read the galleys of Lolita. It's not like that where you go, oh, somebody stole this thing from another person. You go, oh, these things are incredibly similar, very, very similar in some sort of way. And um, the, what's the difference between them? Because when I read them, I had that same reaction of one of these is an artwork and one of these is, is, is trash. Um, that now that might all be too harsh. I have this preamble that I said that I wanted to say, which is that this is a sensitive subject, right? This is a really sensitive subject. And I remember when I was young, uh, a friend of, uh, of mine, an older woman I, I knew, invited me to lecture at Carnegie Mellon University. She was a writing teacher and invited me to lecture there. And I, I had this little lecture that I gave on the difference between artisans and artists, right? Between people who, uh, a simple thing with a great deal of skill and care and can produce beautiful stuff, but they're doing it while working within a prescribed framework and set of rules and activities that they have to follow. There's like a framework for artisanal behavior that's different from a framework from artistic behavior, which is by its nature going to defy certain frameworks and that sort of thing. This is like the thumbnail version of that. And there was a kid, and this is Carnegie Mellon, so it's not art students. That's not like what this school is. It's like a fancy schmancy university that produces doctors and lawyers and engineers and shit like that. And there was a kid I could see getting really agitated by everything I was saying, right? Really agitated by it. And I can't remember what prompted it, but I had to explain to him that like, no, I love Spider-Man 2. If I feel like Spider-Man 2 is an art and a uh, work of an artisan, not an artist, that's not demeaning it in any way. And I could see the reaction in his face be such like one of total surprise, right? Like he just assumed that the distinction was being used to denigrate one thing and raise another thing up, right? That the distinction that, between- That is how it usually is used. <laughs> but yes. you know, like, I, I don't think it's insulting to say something's an artisanal work. I mean, my 
my father's an artisan he's a violin maker yeah that's exactly who he is what you described i i don't think there's anything wrong with that but i think there is a distinction to be made and I think we're using the harsh language here of art versus trash in a way that's sort of, um, I think, meant playfully and fun. I got to say at the beginning, I fucking love Tales from the Crypt. I fucking love it. Okay. Sure. So when I'm calling collection completed in the trash category, it's not because I don't love this thing. I absolutely adore it. And there's plenty of art that's not good or important, right? There's plenty of things that I would classify as art, like Hong Sang-soo or Mars Pialat, Maurice Pialat. They, they make art, but they're total mediocrities. These are totally inessential, totally mediocre things that they've produced, right? So it's not, when those two are definitely artists, they're not artisanal they're not making product they're not making trash they're making artworks but they're also mediocrities and not very good right so the two different categories are not a value judgment right this isn't a value judgment distinction uh i'm i'm making even though there's parts of it to that you know this is sort of like my big worry is that um a lot of the movies i love the most like john carpenter's the thing or total recall they were savaged when they were released as being not art as even being anti-art in some way that they were detrimental to the state of art by their mere existence and so much of the 80s movies people don't seem to have an awareness now of like stallone or bruce willis or schwarzenegger we're, we're not just dismissed as total trash, but we're taken as, as assaults on cinema itself, that these guys are I, I know, actively destroying cinema on, uh, culture. on Twitter and people are in disbelief. They, they think like that can't be right. Like, no, everyone must have loved these movies immediately and praised them and see what we see in them now. And I also think it's really funny how, for me, from my perspective, a lot of the people who fought to legitimize artistically some of those 80s genre movies that i i find a lot of artistic value in they'll turn around and be like okay yeah but those new movies that are coming out right now that you like those aren't art <laughs> so. well that's that's the thing the conversation about the superhero movies uh, it's the same thing where they represent this kind of blockbuster cinema evil that has to be resisted if you take movies seriously and that's what that's what bruce willis was in the 80s that's that's what aliens was in the 80s you know what I mean? These these kind of blockbuster, total recall, the thing, the, these things that if you took movies seriously, you had to resist them. And that's what the conversation about superhero movies has become, is that if you care about movies, if you want Scorsese to ever to just stay alive, he's at risk of dying if you don't call someone an idiot for liking love and thought. He's a very old man. His life is at stake, you know, this kind of conversations. And I have a tendency It's to like be... Tinkerbell, you gotta you gotta <laughs> clap, like you gotta boo the superhero movie to, to other... bring it back to life. Yeah, Scott, it's like it's like him and back to the future, like he's he's fading and he stands <laughs> up and he's playing Earth Angel as we if you just boo Taika Watiti hard enough, Scorsese <laughs> will come back to life. Um, but I have, a, I, I have a tendency to be on the side of coexistence in these things where there's some interesting superhero movies and some quite bad Scorsese movies. And these things are are not actually in coherent opposition to each other in any ways. We can see sure. now that that Robocop doesn't kill Godard 
You know, Godard is still making small movies decades after that that famous title card at the end of, of First Name Carmen in 82 that says, In Memoriam, small movies, where the idea is Jaws. I mean, Jaws was seen as being something that killed art cinema and, and artistry in, in the 70s. And now, you know, that's a ludicrous idea to most people that Jaws occupied the space that 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 Stallone and Total Recall and the Marvel movies once occupied. It was in that space at one point. That's the cultural space it occupied, is look at this big, dumb, fun entertainment that's just, you know, we're never going to get another Bonnie and Clyde now that Jaws has been a hit kind of thing. Um, and so also just touching on this, it, it makes every side very angry to even talk about these things just in this this preamble we've gone through i, I'm I sure. feel like I, people are just I, like furious you know, are listening who are familiar with the podcast that they're not like up in arms over this but you know I, talking about like the death of certain types of movies you know I, I think people would like to blame a certain type of movie for displacing another one but usually it's more like the the these types of movies kill themselves you know it, it's like when you hear people talk about like oh yoko ono broke up the beatles and it's like no the beatles <laughs> broke up the beatles so you know something like a like a heaven's gate probably does more to undermine like a, you know that american auteur driven cinema than a than a blockbuster does so yeah and heaven's gate is an interesting movie you know like yes. <laughs> heaven's gate is not an attempt to be star wars 2 you know it's it's doing something very strange and it's also again it's art and i really admire it and i admire the long cut and it's interesting thing it's also not good even in the restored version it's still a big unwieldy mess that doesn't work right you know but it's definitely a piece of art and so i, I feel I, like there, there is this sort of push to try to talk about it as a masterpiece because it's like look it's big it it looks like a masterpiece right look at all the like it, that's there are moments of such excess such bizarre uh unintelligible excess that surely this must be something important we're witnessing here <laughs> um but the main thing about this conversation that i wanted to say in my little preamble is i want to talk about this with you the listener not having it feel like a devaluation of you, not have this feel like a devaluation of anybody or anything they care about, that I really just want to be this to be a conversation about something that I think we all can can feel or make can we feel, I think is one of the questions is can we feel the difference between art and trash because we'll get into it as it goes on in this but the history of the destruction between highbrow and lowbrow you know between art and not art has been a big part of the the 20th century's history of art and the 20th century's artistic modernist and then postmodernist project has been uh intertwined with the idea that you know a gangster movie's just as good as an experimental film kind of thing you know who's to say if tarkovsky's better than william castle that kind of statement jess franco He's probably as good as Roman Polanski, you know, that kind of thing. As a human being, he's probably as good of a human being. No, I'll, I'm going to cut that out and pick a uh, pick pick a better example. I was trying to think of like a high art director that just Franco's as good as David Cronenberg. 
you know, that 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 kind of of comparison. But I I really, truly, this isn't meant to devalue anything, you know, and I love Tales from the Crypt. I love this episode complete collection completed. And I also love Stuff of Madness and the Patricia Highsmith story. Um, and if anything, I think it's a minor story in her body of work and, and one that I like as opposed to this is a fucking great episode of Tales from the Crypt that I really like, you know? So to make that distinction, um, it I don't want it to be about value judgments. I don't want anybody to feel devalued. I don't want anybody's artwork to feel devalued when you talk about trash versus not trash. You know, it's meant a little bit um, tongue in, in cheek with that. Do you want to, will you take us through, because I'm assuming most people, these are not incredibly no well-known things we're talk, talking about. Would you take us through the plot of Collection Completed, and then I'll take us through uh, the stuff of madness? Sure. You know, it's been, it's probably been like 20 years since I saw this episode, so I didn't really remember <laughs> it that well. But uh, it's about a man played by M Emmett Walsh, who is recently retired. And people who don't know him, Emmett Walsh is the great character actor. You probably recognize him from Blood Simple. I think is probably his most famous role. I love him in Toes, the Tim and Eric's bedtime story uh, oh, with starring right. Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> he's been in, in many, many things. Um, so he's he's at home more often. You know, he's always been at work and he hasn't really been paying attention to his wife for all these years, who's played by... Um, Audra Lindsay. No, Audra Lindley. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so he's, he's spending more time with his wife and he's realizing that she takes care of all these animals, stray cats, strange creatures. She's letting them in their home. And, you know, he's starting to think like, Oh, my, my wife's actually kind of crazy. She's lost <laughs> it. She's looking after all these critters and uh you know it's like one of those things that i you you realize like oh i'm i'm spending more time with this person maybe maybe they're not all here and then uh, the the twist of course is that maybe he turns out to be crazier than she is because he retaliates for all these creatures <laughs> being in the house by uh taking up taxidermy and taxidermying them all these uh beloved animals that she likes he's turning into these uh stuffed things and it leads to a confrontation between them where he ends up being the one who's taxidermied and uh, uh she says well he's he was uh he's happier this way he's, <laughs> he's better off this way it's funny too uh last time we talked on the 2022 year in review episode one of the things i brought up was the uh, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity series with the Kate Micucci episode where yeah. her husband ends up uh, getting taxidermied just like <laughs> this. So <laughs> I feel like this has been the theme of my my uh, 2023 so far. Maybe. <laughs> Talking about taxidermy with Thunderbirds. So. Um, this episode, uh, it was the final episode of the first season it aired in june 28th 1989 it was directed by mary lambert 
Lambert. I'm going to go with Lambert is the correct pronunciation, who's probably best known for the Pet Cemetery movies. Yeah. She sometimes gets mistaken for being an interesting director, which I think is is unfair to her. She's definitely not an interesting director. Uh, although her first movie, Siesta, have you ever seen Siesta? Yes, I have seen Siesta. It's genuinely weird. It's it's yes. genuinely weird and not not successful. And she did an okay version of Grand Isle with um with Kelly McGillis of the Awakening of that that novel uh, starring Kelly McGillis called Grand Isle. Um, it was written by a pair of uh, brothers, Battle Davis and Randolph Davis, uh, who wrote very little. Randolph Davis is basically only ma other major credit is Mission to Moscow, the Police Academy movie. And Battle Davis was mainly an editor. He did a couple Penny Marshall movies and then Lethal Weapon 3 for Richard Donner. Uh, Donner's one of the producers and creators of the Tales from the Crypt series. And A. Whitney Brown also co-wrote the script. He was known for uh, being a Saturday Night Live writer and for being one of the original correspondents on The Daily Show. Um, the I've, I like this episode quite a bit. Uh, watching it again, um, just the Danny Elfman score is so good. Just watching the Danny Elfman score is just so knockout with it. Um, like you mentioned, there's a lot of great lines in it. I, I love when she says, the cats know it's your chair, when she's apologizing for the cats, sit, the cats sitting in its in her chair. It's a great just quick stroke of like, oh, this is going to be a problem living with this person. She thinks the cats know it's her chair. Uh, and then him going, well, don't ruin it with an apology. It's also a great line of like, I I really think that line a lot. Um also, at the beginning of the episode, I was thinking about this. This might be the only episode where you see the Crypt Keeper's feet. I think this might be you the know, only thing. I didn't notice, but that might be right. He's sitting the Crypt Keeper. If you see the puppet, it's like a, it's usually like a torso, right? The yeah. Body, so. He's sitting here with his dog and you can actually see his tiny little legs and his feet. And I feel like. There's one specific pervert out there for whom this is urgently important info that you can, I feel like they just, they're listening to the podcast in the, the car. They just, they just pulled over. They're furiously Googling episode six collection completed right now. Intro. Um, yeah. And this is, uh, you know, we were also talking on the, uh, the 2022 year in review about the, um, Chekhov's gun and in vengeance and how many plays guns are there in Chekhov plays, you know, right. uh, this has a, a very obvious Chekhov's hammer in this book where he's awarded a big silver hammer as a retirement gift at this hardware store he's worked at for 47 years. And obviously, you know, it's, if there's a big heavy silver hammer in a tales from the crypt episode, you, you know, it's going to go off. And that's, that's part of the fun. Um, the only other thing I'd really say about this episode in sort of a, a global way is it, this early 90s, this episode, more than a lot of Tales from the Crypt, it it's going for like this Lynchian Blue Velvet Twin Peaks era kind of tone at times where it feels like uh, ultra exaggerated suburban existence, like dreamy music. Um, sort of yeah. strange. I, mean, I, I thought a little bit of like score. parents or that that sort of thing. Where yeah, 
yeah, it's that kind of throwback Americana kind of feel to it. Um, I mean, Mary Lambert, like the Pet Cemetery, it's it's uh, famously an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. And, you know, you can see maybe a little bit of crossover with like that kind of Stephen Kingy America <laughs> that you yeah. see sometimes in his books. So maybe there's a little bit of uh, carryover from that. Yeah, but the taste, the tastefulization of Stephen King happens in the mid 80s. It really happens with Stand By Me, where Stephen King gets pulled out of the 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 genre ghetto in some way and and sort of it heads into his you know misery shawshank redemption uh of uh mist kind of era yeah, of like it's the era he, when like you can have a film dolores claiborne books or short stories that ends up like on the number one imdb top 250 it's like yeah universally acceptable kind of a yeah thing uh, stephen king movie possibly oscar contender list you know it's it's sure. the tastefulization of stephen king happens around that the same time as this although we we're gonna have to i, I want to talk about stephen Stephen King a little bit too. Um, do you, and do you want to just to move on quickly and take us through Patricia Highsmith's short story, stuff of madness. Um, this is from her uh, collection mermaids on the golf course, as I mentioned, written in 1985 Highsmith. If you don't know her, she's probably best known as the writer of the novel strangers on a train and the creator of Tom Ripley from the talented Mr. Ripley and the Ripley ad series. Um, she's been adapted a lot into movies uh most recently there's an adaptation of her of her uh book deep water with ben affleck and anna de Armas, i think is is the most recent one but you've you've probably seen a movie made out of her work if you haven't um read one of the novels i like her short stories quite a bit she has two short story collections um animal lovers book of beastly murder and little tales of misogyny that are wildly different than her novels and they're they're really something they're really worth worth reading and seeking out they're really both knockouts in their own way mermaids on the golf course is late period it's just a few years before she died and it's there there's no way for me to categorize these stories as they're just highsmith stories that's really what they're what they're like what happens in the stuff of madness is there is a um law you're a barrister in england where highsmith had had lived for a time who's headed into retirement age and his wife has over the course of years of their life taxidermied all of their various pets as they died and accumulated a collection, I think, of 18 pets and put them in their backyard garden and arranged them in quite dramatic poses. They say that like one cat in particular startles people when they come across it in the backyard. And she has somehow... Uh, there's going to be newspapermen, journalists showing up doing a photo spread for their magazine of this, um, of these stuffed animals and these taxidermied animals, these dead pets in the garden. And he really doesn't like that idea. He's a respectable barrister. Um, reading the story a second and third time it's interesting she sets up the unhappiness of their marriage very subtly and slyly early on uh you kind of get the sense that this is like a settled and married couple 
but it's quite an unhappy married couple. And in addition to him not wanting the humiliation of being featured, his house being featured in this photo spread of this sort of macabre and embarrassing collection of animals, this tacky and tasteless collection of animals in their backyard. He had also been cheating on his wife, having an affair when she was pregnant uh, with a woman named Louise. And when his wife Penny found out, uh, the affair was broken off and he's always regretted it and sort of in the back of his mind kept um, the fantasy of what it would have been like if he had actually stayed with Louise, who was a graduate student in child psychology and now was moved to America and was in some kind of important hospital big wig instead of staying with this sort of daffy housewife. And so to get revenge, his wife is, had found out about the affair and seen a photo of Louise. He buys a mannequin and dresses it up like Louise and sneaks it into the garden so that when the newspaper photographers show up, uh, it's a surprise in front of uh, his wife, Penny, that this mannequin dressed up like his beloved ex is there. And she's so upset by it. She has a bit of a panic attack and heart attack and is sent to the hospital. And then he kills himself. He downs uh, booze and pills and lays his head on the lap of the mannequin so that he'll be found there when the photographers return to finish getting the photos that they didn't get when uh, her heart attack interrupted them. And they clearly want to get photos of Louise. They know something strange is happening of the Louise mannequin. And so he, you know, ultimately preserves himself and dies in the garden. You can see how this is similar. You made the associations very easily between these too right yeah i mean they're very similar ideas uh you know it's not quite like you said it's it's not like a ripoff but there's a lot of the same elements this unhappy marriage the sort of who's the maybe more insane one uh taxidermy of course and you know maybe trying to do something cruel to your spouse you know after you've been together for a long time like a, a lot of the same basic elements they're just sort of arranged in a different way i thought it was funny also i mean it doesn't exactly say it in the short story it, it says like oh they, they found him stiff as a dummy i think at the very yeah and but there's uh, that chiller's adaptation of it with the um anthony perkins bookends and he even has to do the little like oh maybe she taxidermy <laughs> so <laughs> the, the tv episode maybe takes it that extra step to really kind of Put the obvious there but yeah i i think like um, very very similar in in most respects and and uh for those who don't know the tales from the crypt series was a tv show produced by um hbo it ran from 89 to 96 seven seasons uh the episodes were based on old vault of horror and tales from the crypt uh, comic books. The episode collection completed was from Vault of Horror number 25, which was from June, July 1952. So obviously the book heavily, the comic book heavily predates the Patricia Highsmith story, if you're worried about uh, who might have influenced who. And it should also be pointed out that Highsmith, um, A, she was writing, that's right when she got her start. I think Strangers on a Train is published in 50 or 51, but like her golden age is like 50 to 56. That's when she makes like most of her most important books and most known books. But she had also got her start writing in comics. Um 
mainly she wrote these sort of biographical comics about like Galileo and Catherine the Great and Oliver Cromwell and things like that. She did write one horror comic in the 40s called The Heap. The Heap is like this proto swamp thing thing. Yeah, it's like a mad thing or I, I think um, maybe I'm going to get this wrong because I'm not like a big comic book person past a certain point, but I think maybe Marvel or DC, one of them tried to sue the other for like, hey, you stole Swamp Thing from our Man Thing, or you stole Man Thing from our Swamp Thing, and they're like, no, actually, you both stole from the Heat. It's like the, <laughs> the, the conclusion of the legal case. Yeah, but the uh, the the uh, Heap story that Patricia Highsmith wrote is awful. It's both it's both trash and bad. It's it's disposable junk, and it's genuinely genuinely terrible but i just mentioned that connection to show she was sort of in that world in some way that she was in the comic book world a lot of literary figures mid-century literary figures sort of intersect with comics and hollywood and tv in in those ways that are sort of natural it's not again to bring it up it's not like she exists in a separate stratosphere of art versus trash where there's no touching of these two things. And I think the last thing I just wanted to mention about the Tales from the Crypt TV show, if people aren't that familiar with it, it's easy to forget now, but it was explicitly the idea is we're going to elevate trash right? We're going to have the biggest Hollywood directors come in and do episodes. We're going to have people like Dick Donner at the height of his powers, Walter Hill, Robert Zemeckis, and in 1989, right, yeah. like at the top of his his game, come in and direct these episodes. We're going to have big writers uh, that, that come in and do episodes, people that are known within either the horror community, like Fred Decker, or people like A. Whitney Brown, and having the biggest stars in the world come in, having Schwarzenegger and Demi Moore and Whoopi Goldberg and people like that on these shows was really something in that era it's easy to forget now but back in 1989 early 90s the lines between tv and cinema were much much harder and unyielding and doing tv was seen as a degradation for actors it was seen as a step down it was a scene moving away uh, your career moving in the wrong direction and having these people at the height of their powers doing this taking these very disreputable right uh you know these comics that were going to corrupt the youth right this is famously the these horror comics were going to to create a, a nation of perverts and and homicidal maniacs right like there were actual congressional hearings about this and lots of books written and make them into something big it was the idea you know and that's and, and that hbo was doing this again that's their old tagline of it's not tv it's hbo this was part of the idea and so again the difference between art and trash high and low the this project is doing something with that right well it's interesting you bring up this idea of like oh we're going to take trash and then throw talented people at it and that will elevate it throw money at it that'll elevate it yeah you know i think sometimes talking to people like their idea of uh, a bad movie or a trash movie it's like an underfunded movie. <laughs> I, yeah. I see that often. You know, like it, it's funny. Sometimes I'll see these uh, so bad it's good type movie people, and I realize like a lot of the times they're talking about films that aren't bad. They're just like 
lower budget competent genre films you know I'm like, i can't remember i i once heard an interview i can't remember who the director was but the interviewer said something to the effect of in your early films you have an experimental style and his response was it wasn't experimental it was underfunded yeah right and but it, like I, I think some people if you pick apart their stance really it comes down to like well you know that's a real movie because it has real money behind it and that's not a real movie because it it doesn't you know and it feels like uh, i don't know there's something wrong to me about this idea that like you know the difference between art and trash is just how much money is behind them yes but like a, a lot of the films that really impacted me are kind of that idea of like hey we're going to take something that's very pulpy and potentially disposable and we're going to try to elevate it like one of the films that really got me into into film and filmmaking was alien which yeah. is uh like basically dan o'bannon's idea to do a, a throwback 50s 60s style science fiction monster movie and yeah. uh, you know it was almost a roger corman film they talk about like uh you know if we couldn't get a big studio to go behind it we'd, we'd go to roger corman and just crank this thing out but you know it's, it's also interesting too for well, me it's that funny. alien was never yeah. um like it, it never really felt like there was one auteur behind alien you sort of try to say like who's the who's the creative force behind alien and it's like well you could say dan o'bannon for originating the idea or ronald chassette for coming up with the the most famous memorable scene in it or you know is it uh is it ridley scott for giving it its style and focus and you know giving it that glossy gritty combined uh, combined look that you know made it stand out or is it hr giger for designing the creature that was memorable like there's a lot of you know potential fathers or even mothers of of aliens so it's not like you can say well it's it's that particular person's artwork but it, it does feel like an artwork when you watch it and there's psychosexual themes and all that stuff when you dig into it well, it's that also that reminds me of because he'll come up later when we're talking. But uh, I had this acting teacher, Laszlo Zabo, who was buddies with all the French New Wave guys. He was he was in a bunch of Godard movies, uh, director in his own right. And he was telling me about how in 1979 he was out walking with Truffaut. They were like movie buddies together. They'd go and watch movies together was his relationship with Truffaut. And Truffaut, they were talking about what's the oh, what's the best movie you saw this year? And he, oh, the 10 drum is really, really great. Oh, you know, the whatever else came out in 79 is all quiet on the Western front. Stalker, whatever it is in 79 is really, really great. And then there was a pause and Truffaut goes, but you know what the best movie of the year is? Laszlo goes, yes, I do. And then they said Alien in unison together, like they didn't even have to to discuss it. You know, they were just like, but obviously, yes. you know what the, the best film of the year is, you know, that's that it's Alien. And I do think that there's an amount of... Um, it's obvious when a movie is really, really good, you know, and that's one of the things the Alien series, I think, is a good example of the first Alien to me is something different than the subsequent Alien films, regardless yeah. of how much I like them or how good I think they are. What it's after and what it's about is just different than the other things. And that, I think, is what this conversation is about, is like, what is that different difference that we're trying to uh articulate in that way you know um 
of like, what is, what does that difference actually mean? It's something that, and is there a way to phrase that difference too, without devaluing the other stuff? Like aliens is great. I'm not here to tell you aliens uh, is not great. In in some respects, it's, it's more entertaining than the first film. It's, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that you can say about aliens. It, it's not a. I I don't think it's it's wrong to say that they're different though. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of two. We had Kevin Marr on the podcast uh, a few uh, a, a little while ago, a few months ago now, I guess, to talk about his book. Santa doesn't need your help. Everybody buy yes. it, even though Christmas is over. And go listen <laughs> to that episode. And he mentioned that when he was a writer in college, he had a writing teacher tell him, you know, what you write is really funny, but have you ever tried to do something more, tried harder and how much that annoyed him to hear somebody. And then he bothered him so much. He put it on social media later, this, this idea that, you know, it's annoying to have somebody who's never made a room full of people laugh, say, can you try more than just getting laughs? But when he was telling that anecdote, and I do think this about Kevin, who I think is a very sharp, incisive guy, I know exactly what she means. I sometimes look at Kevin and go, have you thought about trying harder? You know, have you thought about going for something more than what you're going for, right? And that's kind of a fucked up thing to say, but I also feel like there is that distinction that somehow exists, you know, that that just like getting the biggest laugh versus making, um, you know, being being an interesting director, being a Pierre Attacks or or even an Albert Brooks, as opposed to just being the funniest person in the room are two different things in some way. And this is also, and just so it doesn't seem like I'm slagging <laughs> Kevin, it reminded me of the reason that anecdote and his reaction to it stuck with me so much is last year I was I was dating a woman who's a, a, a very successful very well-known uh, uh, rewarded uh, fetid award-winning author this woman Shankay and she uh we were I would talk with her about my work some she's very encouraging and wanted to know I always felt embarrassed because of our different levels of success to mention anything but I've just of the world I'm in and what I get hired to do and what I'm doing. I write a lot of genre stuff and I work in a lot of genre stuff. And at one point I was telling her an idea I had for something. And she just looked at me and said, why don't you want to write real books? Right. And it was, and it was super blunt. It was like a George Simenon type uh, detective story that I was walking her through that I think is quite good still, but it was just this reaction of, why don't you want to do real work? You know, and it's very similar to the teacher saying to Kevin, like, have you tried more? You know, and it and it there is something that when I would look at her work and I would look at my work, obviously she's a billion times more talented than me. That's step one, you know. But what is how does that talent manifest? And I think the talent talent manifests in intent as well as aesthetic ability, as well as in um technical ability, that that the talent really manifests somehow in intent as well. You know, that that she couldn't write episodes of fucking young Sheldon or whatever. She's incapable of doing it, you know, that that it would just not be something she could do. The talent is is in the intent on top of it. Well, I think just going by the uh, making people laugh example, like I think with 
stand-up comedy, you often see that where there's some comedians who are going for a laugh and that's their goal and is very good at it often. And then you sometimes see these stand-up comedians who, yeah, they can get a laugh, but they also have a goal that goes beyond your satisfaction. You know, I was thinking about somebody like Lenny Bruce who like clearly had artistic goals with his comedy to the point where like he was kind of made into a martyr with the uh, obscenity yeah. trials and all of this stuff but it's like like no there's something more here than just trying to satisfy you i i think you know there's this idea that you can find meaning in these things that go beyond just your own personal entertainment satisfaction because things that that satisfy you like very often they are disposable you know i'm satisfied okay you can go in the garbage that the comic book's been read i've enjoyed it here it can go in the, the dumpster kind of mindset i think when you have something that's a little bit more not even necessarily ambitious but something that has goals that extend beyond that you do find yourself coming back to these things and thinking about them and you know, they can provoke something in you, even if they aren't successful in achieving those goals. Don't you think it's impossible for something to be art if it tells its audience exactly what that audience wants to hear? I, I think that's the difference between art and propaganda in my mind. Like I, I hear a lot of people. Well, I'd say thing. art and pornography in my mind, okay. but I understand. <laughs> and I guess, and I guess propaganda is porno pornographic I, in nature. I, I, I think, uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with pornography either, but I, like, I think in my no, mind- No, pornography is fantastic. I, I <laughs> love it. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, well, and like, if you're talking about like literal pornography, not just like the conceptual kind of yeah pornography, like porn can be quite artistic also. I, I think some people don't realize, but you know, if you're talking about, like for me, um, I see on Twitter often people make a comment about like, oh, I can't believe they made this uh, movie political. Or this uh, franchise <laughs> political now and then there's inevitably somebody who comes along and is like all art's political lol and it's like yeah all art can be read politically but not all art is propaganda and i i think yeah you know people who are are maybe not the best at articulating what frustrates them about a certain work of art might be trying to say that you know that like, yeah what why, why did they turn this work of art into something that just tells people into a pamphlet that's trying to get you to vote a certain way, you know, yeah. As... which often the, the only people who are satisfied by it are the ones who are being told exactly what they already believe. You know, it's not really challenging yeah. anyone who are being told what they want to hear that, that are being told exactly what they want to hear. You that's know, they, when I can th go away very happy that like, Oh, it's pissing off the right people. I'm satisfied. You know, yeah. they don't realize it's for their own satisfaction it's not really oh well that the the, 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 <laughs> the idea of pissing off the right people is so ridiculous I, I it's know, always like, an it's... audience that's like imagining that you know that these people are going to go see but this movie that is, you know? uh, that that is the like pornographic aspect of it is you know you're just thinking about like oh the, you know those other people they're so dissatisfied i'm satisfied uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. like you know it, it becomes something masturbatory when you're yeah. being fed artwork that's just like telling you your your own political beliefs your own ideology back yeah. to you that satisfies you and what you yes. wanted i think there's something about art being tied to consumerism as well art as a consumerist uh, activity it 
it can only be, if art is a consumerist activity, it can only affirm your taste, no matter what it was. The only like, thing um, is that you bought it, is that matters and you liked it. Would you like to buy another? You know, that's, that's, you know, sorry, go on. <laughs> I'm just picturing... Uh, like uh, John Carpenter's They Live, where you, you put on the glasses and it goes from like the C criterion to consume. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but one of the one of the reasons I picked, uh, or I think Highsmith and Tales from the Crypt is interesting uh, to compare and her background, as I mentioned, where she comes from and what she worked in is interesting to compare because this is not collection completed versus Tarkovsky's The Mirror. You know what I mean? These are these are not things where it's very far apart and it's easy for people who, oh, one thing is much better than the other. It's obvious. She's a genre writer. She's bound yes. by genre conventions as a writer, the way that Tales from the Crypt is bound by genre conventions. I, I might say when I was talking about artists and artisan earlier, she's an artisan, maybe, you know, that, but why does this, she doesn't transcend genre. She does something very incredible within genre, you know, and I think that that's something that's interesting to compare the two, do you find stuff of madness to be at completely out of bounds from what collection completed is, or do you find it to no, be in the same universe? It, it's, uh, I mean, they're both they're both little horror stories. I mean, you know, they're <laughs> you could put these. I mean, they're they're too similar to put like in the same collection, but like hypothetically, you could put them in the same. Um, <laughs> I don't know what how you would collect them, but you could, yeah. you could put them side by side. And I, I think on one hand, somebody going from one to the next would not say, oh, this is a completely different thing. But I think you're right that by choosing two works that are so similar, it just kind of highlights the the differences even more. You know, I think it lets you kind of see the ways that they they aren't the same because what what separates a step from madness from a collection completed yeah and it is a it is a weird distinction but i feel like it's there i feel like if i were to parse it um it's not mechanical it's not the one is a genre story and one is not one follows genre convention one does not one is experimental in its language and style that's if anything collection completed is weirder stylistically than stuff of madness which is her her very plain straightforward third person language right i think that it's not radical in any way which is why um i think it's an interesting comparison to 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 bring up uh, between them and to try and say that this is not the mechanical surface aesthetic differences are not necessarily what does it right that that there's something more complicated about it than that and i was actually when i was thinking about this um i i was thinking patricia highsmith might be best known now as the writer of the novel that carol todd haynes's carol yeah. is based on uh, price uh, was, of salt yeah. price of salt um i've never read it i i've just i've only seen the film the only um until this week the only highsmith i've ever read was strangers on a train yeah you know, I, I know her almost exclusively through her film adaptations that 
you know, so I, I don't know how how right my impression was that she was this sort of uh, like pulpy but highbrow kind of genre writer. You know, I, I was almost surprised when when you know you recommended that we, we talk about the story, and I went and checked it out. And I'm like, oh, it's it's like a horror horror adjacent, <laughs> you know, and uh, and then like sending me the the comic book, it's like, oh, like she's more. Her her feet are more in the pulp than I I was expecting. Uh, maybe yes, for sure. Um, I was going to bring up Price of Salt and Carol because it's it's her worst book. I would say it's well, the 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 Dark House, the Black House. I can't remember what it's called. She has a short story collection that's inexplicably terrible. Like every story in it is bad, and I don't understand what happened. But of her novels, Price of Salt is the only bad one, and. It's, I hate talking about her personal life because more than most authors, her privacy has been completely invaded and overrun and dug up. And she was an intensely private person who held memoirism in contempt. This is fine because I, I don't know anything about her privacy. Well, she's life. also, she's also, she's the most, she's the most problematic person that that could be she's just she's just the most there's no defending her i'm always worried that she's gonna get caught in one of those like hey i did any amount of research on her and this is bad everybody you know i know I, i've got a couple artists like that too or uh, Where, people who like i'm like ah, shit this person's uh this person's problematic. Like I, I'm just like dreading the day when people realize. It. <laughs> yes. I'm like, oh no, I'm not going to be able to talk about them anymore. There, there are a couple who like, they're they're just still slipping through those cracks. I know, <laughs> I know. It, she's she's one of the big ones. Um, but her personal life, Price of Salt, is bad because it's untrue. It's very insincere. It's semi-autobiographical, but it takes what really happened and just tells a series of lies about it. Um, it's famously uh, an early lesbian novel that has a happy ending in an era in which they were required to have unhappy endings sort of as a matter of policy, as a matter of moral hygiene. <laughs> um, they were required to bad at, but it has a happy ending. The real story is... She was a stalker who was very disruptive and abusive in this woman's life. And it's not like a cute, sweet story. It's like a story of, uh, of a young alcoholic stalking a woman and nearly destroying her life. That's what really happened. And she has a book called Cry of the Owl that's actually a much more realistic, interesting, ironic, thoughtful, self-reflective version of that story. If you put the two of them next to each other, one of them is uh, is a is a fantasy land romance that glosses over the badness of her. And one is a very quite sincere, I, I was a creep standing outside of her house smoking cigarettes and watching her and imagining a domestic life with her, you know, in the darkness. And but let me explain who I was and where I was at and what that meant to me. Let me explain to you what it means to be 
a creep and a weirdo, you know, and that's a very, Private the Owl is a very disturbing, powerful, interesting novel in that way. Let me tell you what it means to have deeply repressed desires. And then when you reveal them, have them be completely misunderstood and misinterpreted. And instead of being a consummation of desire, have them be an annihilating force. Instead of it being something that brings you happiness, this repressed thing, and I feel like the repression is making me miserable. What if revealing them makes me even things even worse, right? And so Cry of the Owl is a really interesting book and Price of Salt and Chabrol made a, a great version of it starring uh, Matilda May of Life Force Boo Variety. That's and, right, yeah. And um, and Price of Salt is is a lie. Price of Salt is a big fat lie and you feel like you're being lied to when you're reading it because you are. I, I mean, you're making me wish that Todd Haynes had adapted um, Cry of the Owl instead because I think I, I've mentioned- Well, I love this. Carol though. Carol takes well, everything about the book and he he just, he does, he works magic on it. It's a fucking magical movie. Anyway, go I, on. I think like, well, the, the phrase I, I told you before, I think of this podcast or maybe off the air, I forget, but like, it was like, you know, going through Todd Haynes' filmography, by the time you get to Carol, I'm like, oh, this is classy to a fault. I feel yeah. like, <laughs> you know, that, that was sort of my stance on it. And it's like, you know, you, you wish it would be something more like... Uh, like a dog gets spanked or yeah you know, i think like or a poison a or more, yeah more fringe you know i think like it, it's it's interesting to look at like stories that exist on the margins and when you try to bring them into that core of acceptability i don't know they start to lose something for, for me anyway like they start to lose some interest because they aren't really about pushing boundaries or doing something like that it's um i mean daddy gets banked is such a great That's short so film. Good. I, I think about it all the time like right down to the like at the very end when he he crumples up that he doesn't crumple it up exactly he like folds it and he buries it and i remember todd haynes talking about like originally i think in the first draft or something like that who was going to the little boy was going to burn this uh, spanking drawing or rip it up, something like that. And he said, you know, he realized that that was wrong and that he should bury it because burying implies that you can dig something up later. Yeah. It's like this thing that's going to just exist in his, his unconscious and maybe like reemerge in, in adulthood, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I think about like that all the time. It, it's one of those stories that really stuck with me out, out of his filmography. And then like, I think by the time you get to some of the later Todd Haynes things, it's like, oh, these are very like classy, artsy. But isn't isn't that this are... this is one of the themes of stuff yes. of madness and collection completed is the unhealthy preservation of things that have passed, right? The unhealthy preservation of stuff that should have died a natural death in some way. And I think that that's a lot of the art versus trash fight is you know it's weird they put those anthony perkins bookends on the chillers <laughs> yeah. episode where it's about time to put away childish things and it's like where are you getting that from but then you think about it more and you're like well that's actually 
in a weird way, this is what it's about. Uh, but I, I, there was, I saw another tweet and it was a guy and I don't even fucking remember what it was. It was just boxes of like old He-Man toys and the Kroll board game and stuff like that. And, and Tales from the Crypt DVDs were in there too. And there's so many adults you encounter who are living in like this childish stuff, you know, that is, and we're, Martin, this is, you have your Star Wars toys that you take Absolutely. photographs of. And this is not, not a, again, it's not a criticism of that, but I do think sure. there is something to be talked about with it. You, you well, I, I, I can even tell you like a little bit about the, the Star Wars toys, <laughs> yeah. because like, you know, I loved uh, photographing people. It was like yeah. my favorite thing to photograph. And when I was in Toronto, it, it was fairly easy to like ask friends over or find somebody to pose. And I loved working with people. And, yeah. you know, now that I'm I'm living in the middle of nowhere, uh, the, the toys are like a, like a, you know, substitute for that yeah. i I'm, I'm very aware of this that like you know well I, I don't really have anyone to photograph so i guess i'll take this uh, that you're like penny preserving your dogs in the in the yeah, back garden very much so and it's <laughs> it's really not the same at all because like when you're working with a person it, it's collaborative you're engaging with them and it, it feels much for sure better than taking a photograph of a toy i realize this is like a poor substitute and i, I think some people they probably wish their models were more like action figures. Like I'll put your arm here and you hold it and stuff yeah. like that. But you know, there is something fun about trying to capture somebody's character, their spontaneity. It, it's not the same as all. It's, it's not the same at all as when you're a stuffed dog is not the same thing as a dead dog. dog. Well, it, it's the difference <laughs> between like a, you know, something with personality that's alive and an object. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I like, I think, a lot of the stories that we brought up on this episode for whatever reason, like even the necromantic too, I think it's about in a way, the difference between a person and an object. That's like a recurring yeah. theme this episode. And I, I think like objects can have meaning. And like, I'm not so like anti-materialistic that I'm like, Oh, like objects are meaningless. Like I, I think yeah. objects do hold meaning, but it, it's more the meaning we, put into them like um i mean i was telling you i, I was watching earrings of madame de last week and i love so how at the good. beginning of that movie it's like her looking through all her possessions she has like all this you know expensive uh outfits and jewelry and she's like ah like i guess these earrings are the things that i can give up and nobody's going to notice and then when you get close to the end of the movie it's like I'll give up everything I have for these earrings. Just sell them back to me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it, it's like something went from being meaningless to having like all this meaning kind of imbued into it. So, you know, but there's I, I also think, like, something unhealthy are... and obsessive and broken about imbuing too much meaning in it. You know, yeah, it's. I don't know what what the balance is, but like I think objects are are clearly important to us. Like you know, you find these uh, these like Paleolithic graves being dug up and people have like objects that have no clear meaning but they they must have had some kind of meaning to them yeah you know or i it's it's interesting though i do think a lot about objects and collecting and preservation right all these things together and how in our culture which is a consumerist culture in us and canada there's no push ever to put away childish things just so long as you keep consuming, there's no push to put away childish things. And 
the refusal to put away childish things, this is something that both Milan Kundera and Thomas Mann separately identify as an aspect of authoritarianism, right? That the idolization of the child is something that authoritarian cultures always do for some reason. The the idolization of um, childish, of the idyllicness of childhood, the denial of humanity of, child's and, of childhood in some way, like living in cultural nostalgia is something that authoritarian cultures love. And I don't know how to connect those synapses. This is just something I, I've noticed. I mean, there is something that's know? very like, I, I think, you know, there's that like underlying authoritarian sentiment of like please think of the children yes. you can't do that thing because think of the children you know it's, the, it's sort of like the ultimate kind of uh there's like the the wife of the reverend character in the simpsons yeah. it's like somebody think of the children you know it, it's like that ultimate kind of way to shut down people being free and expressing themselves and but i think that I, there's also an idea of continue to think as a child when i was a child i thought yeah. as a child continue to think as a child so our consumerist authoritarian culture can continue to function, don't have a more complex relationship to life. Uh, this is this will be very helpful for us if you continue to think as a child, you know, and um, and I do think there is something weird. I just don't know how fucking people do it. I don't know how you can be 43 and sit through. Uh, old episodes of the Thundercats cartoon. I just, I, I don't, I genuinely don't know. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, like, I don't have it in me and I don't know why other people do. And I don't know what the relationship is. You hear a lot of the time, like, sometimes I just want to, you will, you hear just like, I like the nostalgia and I like returning to the well, more innocent time, but also, lot. sorry, go on. Uh, well, like, I'm not even sure it's really nostalgia that people are describing. Like, I, you know, I remember reading somewhere that the, the meaning of the word nostalgia, it's like the pain of an old wound. It's something that yep. like, is painful. You know, this week, I, it, I was originally like about, um, it was originally intended to mean the pain of remembering. The pain what, of remembering. Yeah, it like means pain um, from an old wound. But it was meant to be when you remember something and it's painful to remember it. That's nostalgia. You know, I, I saw people were like um, reminiscing about uh, like Blockbuster and video stores. Yeah. Yeah you know talking about the nostalgia and i did a tweet uh which came across less harsh than i intended it which blew up but you know i said like oh i like i miss britney murphy more than i miss video stores <laughs> you know because that's that is for me like it's like ah oh, like she's gone like it's kind of painful to yeah know, look back and see her in a movie and like oh she died too soon and like there's something kind of uncomfortable there and it's it's not a warm fuzzy feeling yeah you know, and I, I think when people talk about like ah, nostalgia, like it's not nostalgia if you sit down and watch a bunch of Thundercats cartoons because you were sitting down and watching them. Yeah. You know, it would be nostalgia if it's like, ah, oh, damn, I, I wish the last episode of Thundercats hadn't been destroyed in that fire. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I think that there is there is a different feeling that people are describing and kind of wallowing in and I, I don't think it's true nostalgia i think it's also the other thing you hear is well sometimes i just need to shut off my brain and you know and not think and that's always weird to me because a that sounds like sometimes i just need to not deal 
with myself and what's happening inside of me. And that doesn't feel like a good thing to do with any kind of consistency. It's also the people who are like, I just need to shut my brain off and watch some Real Housewives. It never is like some person that you're like, that person's brain is overworked. That person's brain, <laughs> this is a world famous neurobiologist. We got to we gotta think to power that down. They're thinking too much, this person. You know, you never feel like like those things go hand in hand. I, I don't know. I think Again, also when you're talking about stuff that's entertaining, I think often people might dismiss artistic merit in these things because they think it's a it's a shut your brain off kind of experience. Like yeah. you know, I, I'm writing a big thing about uh King Kong right now. And yeah. you know, I, I was tweeting about um Kong Skull Island, which I think is a wonderful film. You know, it's it's not perfect. There's some faults which the director himself is kind of quick to point out. But, you know, I think like most people, they were talking about like, oh, this movie's so stupid. This is like a shut your brain off kind of a movie. Yeah. And like there's there's so much <laughs> to think about when you're watching this movie. You know, like I, I find it so creative visually, the way it plays with scale. I think like thematically, it's interesting how it's about, uh, you know, partly about Samuel L. Jackson's character, who's somebody who's just gone out of one unwinnable extraterritorial American war and is like trying to make himself feel better by immediately throwing himself into another one fighting uh, King Kong and how that kind of mirrors a lot <laughs> of the American uh, extraterritorial policies of the last couple decades. And, you know, like there's definitely thought and artistry and care put into making a film like that, you know. So when people are like, oh, it's a big dumb monkey movie, it's like, I, you know, I guess if you're, if you're not thinking about it, maybe sure, but yeah, you know, something can be pulpy and entertaining and it still has artistic value. You know, that's, that's something I really believe. I, I, I think like, I don't, I mean, uh, there's that quote by Alejandro Jodorowsky talking about El Topo when, you know, he was asked like, oh, what does it mean? He's like, well, like, you know, if you're, if you're approaching it with a limited mindset, it's going to look like a very limited film. And if you approach it with an open mindset, it's going to look like a very big film. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes it might come down to, uh, you know, a viewer. And I'm not like the most death of the author kind of person. I'm I'm actually a little bit like sick of that type of talk. But I, I think a lot of well, it it's kind of I don't like to... that talk because audiences are so mediocre compared to most authors. Yeah, but I think if you <laughs> if you can find value in in a film or book, you know, even if it's not what the author intended, sometimes, you know, that doesn't mean that that's worthless, but. Well, that's the know, thing I, is you can yeah. find value in anything, but I think that there's a weird cultural thing that happens now where there's no, again, it's the death of the author that because I found meaning in it, therefore it has the same value as something else that has meaning in it. You know what I mean? That I wrote a very clever essay about this, you know, old comic book. Therefore, it's and therefore, and this essay is excellent. Therefore, this old comic book is as good as Brothers Karamazov or whatever. Sure. You know, it's that kind of thought you see a lot of that. If I found meaning in it, that's all that that's required. Um, and that's that's I think leads to the distinction of or the destruction of the distinction between high and low that we're talking about a little bit, where part of the impetus of this conversation is it's really unpopular, even in high art spaces, 
to talk about their distinction between trash and art, that that's an unpopular position to take that. No, you can tell the difference between these things, you know? Um, and, and even that's unpopular uh, to talk about now, sort of why I wanted to talk about this with you. Let me ask you a question. There's a lot of darkness in Collection Completed, you know, murdering animals, that murdering spouses, a lot of uh, violence, a lot of unpleasantness, right? What's, what's the difference between the darkness of the Tales from the Crypt episode and the darkness in the Patricia Highsmith story? Um, so I would say that for me, the difference between the darkness in uh, Tales from the Crypt, Collection Completed... And the stuff about this is that collection completed the the darkness. It's fun. It's it's a goof. It's a gag. You know. It's um, I mean, the whole episode is structured very much like a joke. You're kind of waiting for the punchline. Uh, the way I think a lot of the Tales from the Crypt episodes are, where you get to the end and like, oh, okay, he is the one who is crazy and ends up taxidermy they're both like it's a uh, it's structured like a joke i think for me the stuff of madness it's actually kind of like unpleasant setting you know even though it is is sort of like a playful story i think like there's sort of a real misery about the dissatisfaction of this marriage the idea of living somebody who you're living with somebody who you're really embarrassed by having this love of your life who's gone and that you're trying to like bring back in this really unhealthy way like it, it's there's an unpleasantness to the darkness it's it's actually kind of upsetting yeah it's it's about loneliness and the irreversible mistakes you can make in life it's about feeling like you've wasted your life and imagining something else for yourself and collection completed theoretically it sort of turns that stuff into a joke like that him working at the hammer factory for 47 yeah. years yes. uh, and never missing a day of work it's played to be silly in some way it, and it I, might also come down to the difference of of how young the person is who's making these things i mean patricia highsmith like you said she wrote the story towards the end of her career and it feels like somebody writing from a place of like, Hey, I actually know what living with regret is and all of these things versus, you know, if you're somebody who's young up and comer, like uh, Mary Lambert was when she made this, or um, I'm not sure about the screenwriters, but you know, collection complete feels like more of a, you know, these kooky old people are going to be kind of fun. Yeah. Kind of a situation. You know, I think some of it might come down to just how you connect with it based on your own life experience. But yeah. Doesn't it also feel like you're sort of rooting for him to get killed after he's killed the animals and, and oh, well, treated totally. her cruelly? I mean, that's, yeah. That's the whole point, really. It, it, like, it's meant to be satisfying in the way that the choke is is satisfying. You're waiting for him to get his comeuppance and in a clever way, you know, you want that little bit of uh, irony just. <laughs> Whereas the point it... of, a, of, of identification for stuff of madness is it's with 
Christopher Wagner, the lawyer, the barrister, the whole time, it's in his perspective. It's it's more complicated how perspective and identification works in art than to say you're on his side, but you're with him. The guy who's cheating on his wife when yeah. she's pregnant, who's embarrassed by her animals. She seems like a sweet person, but you're with him through the story. You're tracking his psychology. You're living with him in it. And and it's it's not that it's sympathetic well, to his, him, it's that it understands him. He seems from his point of view, he's the same one, you know, even though what he's ultimately doing is is completely crazy. Um I love to in the Chillers adaptation, there's that moment when he's looking at the photograph of Louise, the real Louise. Yeah. And in her voice he's imagining louise saying that uh his wife is oh she's so crazy you know and it's this weird kind yeah. of moment where you know you have this sort of um delusion that involves judging somebody else as crazy when you're like in the middle of this um fantasy where you're detaching from reality well it's interesting we should talk about the chillers episode a little bit it was um Chillers was this TV series, an anthology TV series that was all Highsmith adaptations from, uh, it's all adaptations from Slowly, Slowly in the Wind uh, of her short story collections, Mermaids on the Golf Course or The Black House. It's it's taken uh, from them. Uh, and it's, it has bookends by Anthony Perkins sort of doing a Crypt Keeper thing. Uh, it aired like almost one year exactly after the Tales from the Crypt episode on June 15th, 1990. Um, and it was directed by Mai Zetterling, which is pretty shocking. I don't know how famous she is now if that name rings a bell she was like a swedish superstar actress turned sort of like forgotten director she's a little bit of like the swedish ida lupino is that is that a fair comparison she's bigger than ida lupino ever was she was like a big time star and like ingenue and yep. beautiful woman uh famously bergman wrote a script for her early in in his career when he was still writing things and not not yet turned to director I, um, i'm young enough i i think of her as like She's the grandmother in Witches, right? <laughs> yes. That that's like the, the thing I know her from. <laughs> Which is it's sort of funny coming up of uh working with Nicholas Rogue. And it, it's kind of an interesting confluence of talents on this episode. You also have uh Ian Holm in it. Yes. In uh Alien, which we were <laughs> discussing. Yeah. But and he, he... he's so good at having that like kind of like small, unassuming, but with something dark presence um he does that really really well in this um and it was written by zetterling and a guy named david hughes and it's his only credit here's here's the here's a twist this chiller's adaptation of the stuff of madness i think it is an art i think it's junk <laughs> i i think i think there's something about it that becomes junky in some way and this was a question that i had for you that it almost feels ludicrous to ask but if you try and parse it, it becomes a weird idea. Why aren't TV shows short films? I mean, Why? some of them are. I mean, when you watch like a like an Outer Limits or something like that. Are they? Get... I don't yeah. get that impression almost I, I ever, so. even with anthology shows. But I'm saying like there are, there are 99 percent of TV is not okay, a short well, yeah. film. Ninety nine point mean, five is not a short film. Yeah. That, that is this is not a short <laughs> film but why 
I, I think it's because television, it's in some ways it's designed to be disposable. Like that's, that's its uh, virtue for a lot of people <laughs> is that it doesn't stick with you. And I think like, especially a lot of the long form television, the whole idea is just to kind of like string you along until it exhausts itself and then you move on to the next one. But you know, well, that's definitely are... true. But even beloved stuff that does stick with people like Star Trek, the original series or Next Generation, that sticks with people. You wouldn't call those short films. That would be a ludicrous thing to call them. No, I mean, what, what's funny is when you watch Star Trek, the very first couple of episodes, it's funny to watch it before the show really figures out what it is <laughs> yeah. and has like a, a sense of continuity and these are who these characters are because like you watch the first couple and it's like um here's a space adventure story i guess <laughs> you know like, that, that's almost more like a short film but it's not to the, the show's benefit necessarily but you do get um even within shows that have a lot of continuity you'll get a specific episode which feels like a short film like i at some point for the pink smoke website i would like to write something about uh Two of my favorite television episodes ever. Uh, one is the Jose Chung episode for the X-Files yeah. from Outer Space, which feels like a very kind of within the whole body of the X-Files. It's like, oh, this thing is is separate from the rest of that. Yeah. And then you had a sequel on the television show Millennium with Lance Hamrickson, which was sort of like a little bit supernatural kind of slasher of the week type show. And you had a sequel to the X-Files episode where you had uh, actually, it's not even really a sequel. It's just like another Jose Chung story. And it, it's actually quite different, but you had a return to the same character. And it, it's probably like one of my favorite episodes of television of all time, because it does function like a short film. It's about this character who's this uh, writer who was friends with this uh, author named, uh, Juggernaut Unen Gupta, who is kind of a stand-in for um, L. Ron Hubbard. He's somebody who was not a very good author, yeah. who was in the circles of, of people who he admired and who decided like, well, I'm going to start a, a cult, basically. And, you know, that, that episode, if you ever watch it, it, you can watch it completely detached from the rest of the show, and it has a lot to say about art and writing and happiness and religion and all these things that I think are really interesting and that feel distinctive. Um, Darren Morgan also wrote a really good episode that also feels kind of here's the thing from the rest of the I show, think but... I think trash can have a lot to say. That's I'm not trying to say that the definition of trash is it can't have a lot to say or interesting ideas or be well made or be fun right? I think that it can. I think that there's that, that uh, again, it's what you're talking about when a real movie versus a not real movie is money. You can actually just have the, the slickness and the craftsmanship and the entertainment value and have it be thought provoking in but some way. Uh, but then I think if you're talking about the disposability of these things, like, you know, I mean, just the name trash that we're using as a label yeah. implies that something is disposable. You know, if I could watch, um, a TV show like Millennium, which I, I would tell people like, oh, that's one of my favorite shows ever. There's maybe like five good episodes in yeah. that show. Like, I, I love it. But there's, you know, really, like if you go through and are, are critical, there's not a lot that holds up. But this episode, like one thing in particular, really stuck with me in a way that separates it from the rest of the show, you know. So I think sometimes you do have 
art emerge from trash maybe do you can you do you think a distinction between stuff of madness and collection completed is one of sincerity versus insincerity i mean that's a distinction but i don't think that's the distinction between art and trash because you can have i mean you can have insincere art a lot of my favorite art is very sarcastic actually like i think if you're talking about something like a a paul verhoeven you know you can watch a whole paul verhoeven film and like yeah this is art this is also not sincere in fact i, I think like what makes it i mean some some of it it's has ironic sincere, it's yeah. ironic but but i think ironic is not incompatible with sincerity i th i would not okay. say paul verhoeven's movies are insincere you don't think in that troopers is is insincere well, that's the one where he probably goes the furthest. And I think that's yeah. why it's the, the weakest of, of the great really? ones. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I don't think it's on the level with Robocop or Total Recall and, and especially not his, his Dutch movies, which I, you know, again, those are slightly better than, than his Hollywood stuff uh, or even, or even showgirls. But I think that what he's doing, I don't think that Starship Troopers might be insincere. I don't think RoboCop is is no, insincere. Ro Robocop, you it really expresses feel... a sincere artistic vision and it's, sensibility it's... that happens to be ironic and happens to be sarcastic. Sure. I, I, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, he's very sincere when he's dealing with like the Alex Murphy character getting killed. Who he deals with death and I think he's he very with, sincere you know, like in his critique sincere. of corporate America and the militarization that's of police. Sincere. I think yeah. that's a very sincere critique in a way yeah. that in the Robocop remake, there's no sincere critique of police and militarization. No. And the guy yeah. they in fact got made the like the all-time he hey, isn't militarized police movie. fucking awesome movie. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's no, even though that stuff is written in there and those notes are still in that script, there's no sincere uh, uh, critique of it. I, I was, I, I mentioned sincerity because I, I was thinking about how it's not the mechanical aesthetic difference. Like Highsmith's a genre writer, collection complete is a genre story. It's not necessarily the the uh, mechanics of it, but when I was thinking about Truffaut a lot recently. I've been watching a ton of Truffaut movies and just really been steeped in him. And um, it's funny because Tarantino had that quote recently about how he's a hapless filmmaker with the exception of like one or two films like Adele H, right? And oh, he's really he said this. Yes. And, um, but it's funny because like, it's, it's actually kind of fucking true and identifying Adele H as like one that's like technically stands above the others is really, really Tarantino's true. Like bride where black is, is an art. Definitely don't watch it. Well, but, <laughs> <laughs> but bride where black is bride where black, which is a movie I like is actually terribly directed. It, it is feels like, what is he trying to do? And he's incapable of doing it. You know, it's like everybody compares it to Hitchcock, but it's like anti-Hitchcockian. He has no mastery of the medium as a filmmaker, I would say. This is a filmmaker I love. But what Tarantino, it's funny, Tarantino can't identify what's valuable about Truffaut, which is this talent for sincerity and honesty. He's His talent is to be an incredibly sincere filmmaker. And the less sincere he's being, the worse the movies are, the less he can tap into the sincerity, the worse they are. It's not the better edited and shot and performed they are, right? 
that's not the matrix for what makes his movies good. Oh, well, when they're shot and edited better, they're better. Or when they're poorly performed and poorly shot, they're worse. No, it's how sincere they are is how good they are and how valuable they are as movies. But sincerity is something like emotional sincerity, emotional intelligence is just not even in the universe of Tarantino's <laughs> ability to understand anything. So it's funny, he identified something. It's like that, that quote is true in some ways, but also it's funny that he doesn't get what the leavening agent is. But when I think about Truffaut too, you know, the new wave guys, it hasn't always been the case that there was no difference between high art and low art, you know, that like that really got collapsed in pop culture. The idea is floating around, but the French new wave guys are the ones that establish and sort of, uh, 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 canonize the idea that there's no distinction between high and low right? That Frank Tashlin is as good as Ilya Kazan, you know? I think it's funny, like a lot of the people who talk about auteur theory now, they use it to make that distinction between the the high and the low art. They they try to, and it's like, that's never really what that was about. And a lot of the filmmakers that they they the whole idea was Hitchcock. I I think people today misunderstand the theory. Like to me, the, the theory as proposed was not that you've got a write your own movies and you know all this stuff. it's that it doesn't matter who wrote your movies you can give uh you can give whatever script to this director they're gonna yeah. make it their movie yeah give you know, any that, that script to the... nicholas ray and it'll become a nicholas ray movie it was the right. entire idea is that you could give these assignments to howard hawks and he'd make them into howard hawks movies right and the idea yeah. that howard hawks is just as good of a director as as ingmar bergman you know that's so it, it's funny they really stuff like um like for a while, you had people talking about this uh, vulgar autourism, which is yeah. a, a very, it's like, for me, it, it, it's like seductive for about 30 seconds, because I'm like, oh, they're going to talk about all these filmmakers who I am actually really interested in <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but then like the, the, the idea is that like, hey, these are bad auteurs, but guess what? They're, it's like, no, it doesn't matter. Like based on the auteur theory, you're you're an auteur or you're not. It doesn't really matter about the quality of the film, if it's good or not, or if it's uh, pulpy or not. Like I, I think, you know, a lot of the people that they talk about when they say the vulgar auteurism, a lot of the filmmakers they name, like those fit into, I mean, they would be labeled auteurs in the traditional sense. Like that you don't need to, there's nothing vulgar about it, you know what yeah. I mean? Well, that's, <laughs> but, but, uh, that's a, but that's a real pop cultural tendency and a real critical tendency now is to, hey, trash art is real art, you know, kind of thing. And that's and that's not what I'm trying to, to say with this conversation is that trash mm-hmm. art isn't real art. I think that that's been so long established. You know, this is going on we, 70 we years. The, the, <laughs> the more the, complicated uh, aspects more complicated of complicated art, yeah. Yeah, the more complicated aspects of that distinction, you know, that that being uh, an auteur is not necessarily good. And somebody who they're really insistent is not an auteur like Michael Curtiz made movies that are as good as many movies ever made. I you mean, know, one of the filmmakers I, I like, I wouldn't really consider auteurs like I mean, we, earlier we were talking about Ridley Scott. I, I don't really feel like Ridley Scott's an auteur. I think he's a great yeah filmmaker but uh, like that's not the same thing to me yeah you know who has I mean? a distinctive consistent authorial voice that's 
uh, able to harmonize his work across the spread of genres and times. No, he obviously doesn't do that, but that doesn't matter. The Duelist is awesome. That's all that matters, you know? Sure. <laughs> like, he's he's probably made more of my favorite movies than a lot of people I would consider, like, real authentic auteurs. <laughs> so, But do you think, let me ask you this, do you think Stuff of Madness is better than Collection Completed? In this one instance, do you think it's better than the other? And do you think yeah, that's I, related? I, I do. Yeah, I, I think, for me, part, part of the reason why I would consider it better is there's just a little bit more depth there's a little bit more psychological truth i think i mean collection completed it, it's fun that it's this sort of like farcical thing that you know you enjoy you get a kick out of and then you move on to the next episode you know yeah. i think again if we're kind of digging into what separates these things i think stuff of madness is not written in such a way that you finish it and you're like that was fun. On to the next story. You know, well, it's funny <laughs> in the in the in the short story collection. The story that immediately precedes it is a shot from nowhere, which is a knockout. It's a story that I think about all the time. It's a story I absolutely fucking love. And I did have that reaction the first time I read it. Like, wow, that is an absolute fucking knockout. I haven't really dug into mermaids on the golf course. Let me read the next one. And I started reading. It was like, wait, I don't want to read or do anything right now. Let me live in shot from nowhere for a little bit and then go back to it. And they're both, it's a very simple story too. Uh, shot from nowhere is fantastic. It's about this artist who sort of gotten a girlfriend who's left him for another guy so he goes down to mexico to like tool around and find vistas to paint and all that and he ends up in this small town and out of his hotel he keeps seeing this kid who's supposed to be i think be somewhere between like 10 and 13 uh like not violently but like sort of torturing these cats in a cruel way right like he's teasing them he's taunting them with food he's shoving them around he goes outside one day to look at the kid and he sees that there's a camera crew like a small like group of like three guys with a camera filming him he doesn't speak any spanish really the camera crew leaves he doesn't know what's going on right the next day somebody shoots the kid he's looking out his window and there's the sound of the shot and the kid gets shot and falls on the ground right and he's like, oh, my God, this kid's going to die. The town's during siesta, so there's nowhere around. The film crew isn't there anymore. At first, he's like, I guess it is a movie. He doesn't know what's going on. And then he tries to find people in the town to be like, we need to get this kid an ambulance or he's going to going to die. Somebody shot him. And everybody goes to is like, no, this is a bad kid. He's a really, really bad kid. You in like broken English, like bad muy, muy malo is bad kid bad, bad kid. And nobody wants to do anything about it. So he goes to the police himself. And like the bar owner is like, don't go to the police, dude. Like, just don't go to the police. You know, and he goes to the police and the police are like, oh, somebody got shot. Oh, that bear, bad kid. Seems like you're probably the one who shot him. Maybe you should go to jail for this. Right. And you realize what the, the, the thrust of the story is, is that there's this terrible kid that everybody in this town has identified as being evil and he's shot and they just want it to go away and nobody to think about it. Like the small town is an in, in, enacted, you know, this kind of uh, frontier justice, uh, probably rightfully so. He's a kid torturing stray cats, right? This is probably a, a really evil, dangerous little kid. And um, and then they're just going to use this guy as a scapegoat, right? 
for the murder, that the murder, mm -hmm. if it's going to be reported and the police are going to have to know about it, and it's going to be on the record. Well, then you're going down for it. And it's this incredible story. It's a mysterious story. There's stuff like the camera crew that's never really explained. It's oblique and it's very heavy and it really fucking it's a knockout, you know, and it's exactly what you're saying. I don't want to move on from it. I, I wanted to live in that story for like a week yes. and not read anything else. And then you go to Stuff of Madness and it's interesting because Stuff of Madness is very small and simple story compared to that. Stuff of Madness is a very modest story. It doesn't feel like a knockout, which is again, one of the things that I think making the distinction between art and trash it's so similar to collection completed, you know, like shot from nowhere yeah. could not be a tales from the crypt episode with a little fucking tweaking stuff of madness could be, it could be a chillers episode. Is that's for sure. Episodes? <laughs> I believe shot from nowhere was made into a chillers episode as well. Was but, it also? Um, okay. um, but it's, it's, it makes me go, what's the difference there? And I really do think it's intent. At the end of the day, I think the difference is you have an artist behind one trying to express something true. And on the other one, you don't. And I really think that's what it is. Either they don't or they're incapable of it or something in the process gets screwed up or they're not allowed. But I really think that's the difference between art and trash. I think disposability is right. I think you're right to identify disposability, how much you're supposed to live inside of it. But I also think intent is a really big part of it too. You know, that, that the intent of the artist mm -hmm. to create a piece of art to create something good is part of it. Because when I read the Patricia Highsmith comic, The Heap, it's fucking terrible. There's no trace <laughs> of her. And I think there was no intent of her to make it good. I think she yeah. had no intention of making her her uh, episode of The Heap any good whatsoever. You know, and I really think that's what it is. She Her talent didn't not exist when she was writing it. I think she had no intent of, of creating a piece of art. I, I think... That's a big part of it for sure. Um, it's funny, like what one of the things a lot of people have been talking about on the internet lately are these, uh, they call it AI art, which I think you can't even call it art. Yeah. Because I think there is no intent behind it. Like it's not, yeah, it's not art. It's like a garbage image making. Well, that's thing. again, uh, yeah, to put, to put it back on Truffaut, Terrence Rafferty has one of the great statements about Truffaut is that his films feel like receiving a letter. And I think that's a lot of great art does feel like that. It feels like you're getting a letter from somebody and a letter is important because you can't respond. An artwork, you actually, you can't, you don't write back, you don't say anything, you don't, it's not a conversation. It's receiving a letter from somebody and reading it and hearing their thoughts and living with it. And I think that that's really, I think that that's true. And yeah. the AI art is not a letter from anybody, no. you know, in the I way, mean, in the way a McDonald's ad is not a letter from anybody, you know, yeah. it, it might on the surface resemble it in some way, but. You know, it's, uh, just for, for example, like one of the things these, um, I forget which program it is. One of them, it's like notorious, I think mid journey for the the weird fucked up fingers yeah. and hands. And I was thinking like, you know, if you have an artist who's doing strange things with hands, you would think about like a person made a choice to do this. What What is the thinking behind this? Where or you would just from? think Todd McFarlane can't draw feet. 
<laughs> sure. I mean, I, I made the joke too. It's like, uh, that's okay, AI. Like, I'm not good at drawing hands either. <laughs> but, you know, like if you look at like, you know, a Beksinski painting or something like that, there's like an intent why like, oh, why, why do the hands look like that? Or, you know, like if uh, if you're looking at uh, Edvard Munch or something like that, you know, there's there's a thought process to why these things look the way they do versus like something that's just incapable of <laughs> constructing uh uh something realistically you know it's like trying to and failing because it's doing it as this mechanical process but you know sometimes the things that are flawed if there's an intent behind them it can be very interesting i mean you're talking about like the mysterious nature of the camera crew in that story and like i think you know, if we're talking about one of the things that maybe separates trash and art, um, you know, I'm not sure that trash can have real mystery or mysterious moments in it. The things that are the the loose ends, which you can't the space quite... to dream inside of. Yeah, like I, I think like a lot of my favorite art, like it's not it's not something that you can box up and put like a neat little bow around it, and it's like that is the complete idea. I can write it all out in the essay and explain every part of it. Like a lot of my favorite art leaves things that linger in my mind, you know, they, they are like unresolvable in a way, or you wonder about them or try to reconcile them with other ideas that seem contradictory. Like, I think there is a messiness to art, good or bad, that I think if you're making something disposable, it can't really have, you know, like uh, an artistic messiness often. Uh, you know, I, I guess your art can be neat and tidy too, but, you know, I, I think like, you know, just for example, like you said, McDonald's ad, like you can't make a McDonald's ad that's got uh, unclear meaning and it's like, uh, you know, to, to find out how, what's in our burger, you know, you'll have to like experience it for yourself. Because the meaning is always like, clear, which is, <laughs> which is, has to be clear. Is by, yeah. No, no. Even if it's because David Lynch did some bizarre ads, but the meaning is clear, which is by, <laughs> with, no, which is by our it's, product. By yeah. our product is the meaning of that David Lynch ad. It can be super bizarre, but the moment the image comes up on screen, yeah. the, the meaning has is transformed into, we've shown you these weird images so you remember our company to buy the product. That is the exactly. intent behind it. It dissolves the dreaminess of it, the dream space of it, the mystery of it, because there's no mystery anymore. You know, the mystery has been resolved. The mystery of the McDonald's ad is always buy McDonald's. That's always what the solution is. We got our top detectives on it. They cracked the case. You know, that's why I always get depressed when I see like, it's going to watch this ad that Edgar Wright directed. It's going to blow your mind. And it's always like, no, it's incapable of blowing my mind. It will just, you know, it's like listening to those super technical drummers or like Ingve Malmsteen play guitar. It's like, can be super fucking impressive. This is nothing though at yeah. the same time, you know? Well, it... An it's empty display of virtuosity, is... an empty display of virtuosity is not art, I will say, although I think a lot of people would disagree and with that. Sometimes you have these artists who are hired to do commercial work and then deliver something that like cannot be treated that way. Like, um, I remember I went to go and see JMW Turner's paintings when they were in Toronto. Yeah. And one of the most interesting series they had were... Um, 
he was commissioned to do a series of portraits to promote this whaling company. Yeah. And he turned them in and they're these like really, you know, I mean, they're, they're charter paintings and they're very like yellow and strange and off-putting and they got rejected because they're like, this does not promote yeah. us. <laughs> you know, and it's like, that's kind of what happens when you get like an artist who pushes back against this idea that who creates an artwork, clear, you know, yeah. so there's probably other, other examples. I mean, you have somebody like a uh, guy Madden when he was giving funding to do like a documentary on Winnipeg, you get something like my Winnipeg that doesn't exactly the, the, the <laughs> sort of thing, you know, I, I know like some, some artists feel like they need to do commercial work and do things like that to get money so that they can make art. But but Some I also think the distinction like... the distinction between art and trash is not as simple as commercial or not commercial. No, I don't no. think well, that, that that's, that's I don't even think that's yeah. a meaningful distinction. You know, you know but I, I think for artists, there is an idea that like, oh, I'm doing something commercial. This is not going to be my work of art. I'll yeah. just fund my work of art. And there are others who see commercial opportunities as an outlet for their artwork, you know, so I, I think yeah. like there are different different mindsets, different approaches. I mean, I've, I've, I've had this a lot in my mind because I've been writing about um, both from the architecture piece I've been working on and also for this King Kong thing, like filmmakers like George Lucas and Peter Jackson, who, you know, I think started off very interesting and then made these commercial works, which blew up. Actually, I think, you know, since we're talking about it, uh, Frighteners might've originated from Jackson pitching a Tales from the Crypt episode. Oh, really? Maybe I'm getting that wrong. I, I think no, that makes a lot of sense. With... No, you're you're right. I think it was. Yes, you're absolutely. I'm. This is half remembered, but you're right that it was related to Tales from the Crypt. God damn I, it! I, where's Cribs? Cribs would know this exactly. John Cribs would know this, but yeah, I, I think maybe he was he was originally trying to direct an episode of that, and they were like, oh, like this idea could clearly be something bigger, and it kind of turned into this standalone yeah. film but you know you have somebody like uh, lucas go off and make a star wars and jacks go and make a lord of the rings and they're wildly successful and in a way they stop being artists after well i don't want to say they stop being artists but they, you they start you lose to them to, to you lose them i will say you know, i yeah. i will say this about jackson jackson was one of my very favorite filmmakers Growing up in high school, I loved and heavenly creatures felt like reaching a crescendo with him of just, I love this. I love dead alive. I love bad taste. I love these movies so much. Mm -hmm. I'm so into this guy. I, I just love these films. And I felt like Lord of the Rings, which I don't give a shit about. I just don't care about those kind of like elves fighting magic movies. They're just not for me. Right. And I yeah. and I felt like I lost him and not just because I wasn't interested in the subject matter, but because I would say those movies don't have any personality to them. They they certainly don't have the personality he displayed in his other work. Unlike, say, Sam Raimi, when he does Spider-Man mm -hmm. or Doctor Strange, his personality is still on display in those works. Yeah. You know, I, I think maybe we've talked about this before at some point, but I think. You know, pe people will look at something like a Star Wars prequels, and I don't think they really like that's George Lucas trying to be commercial. That that's an artist who's not really suited to being like a block. Like yeah. he's not Spielberg, so yeah. he's like, I I need to put something in so that 
you know, kids will find this funny. I'm going to put in Jar Jar Pinks. I know. A lot of these choices in those films are the choices of an artist who's trying to make a commercial work who's not really suited for it. And you get this weird, like, dissonance. And, you know, I think, like, it's a little bit similar with Jackson. Like, I was, you know, I was watching King Kong a lot, of course, but... Um, you know, I think by the time you get to stuff like Hob the Hobbit uh, prequels, <laughs> the Hobbit trilogy, <laughs> which should have been a, a trilogy, but like it feels very much like, uh, like I I need to make. It feels like trying really hard to make something that audiences like, and it kind of gets back to this idea that we were discussing of audiences you know, love what they want to hear Tom Bombadil. That's what I know about audiences. <laughs> I didn't even watch you, you those. Can kind of tell who, that's who's the thing. I didn't. The, e the I didn't Lord. even fucking watch those movies. I mean, I I, I, a little bit know. younger, so like I loved the Lord of the Rings films when they were coming out, and then I remember after the Hobbit movies came out, I've been like incapable of going back and watching them. Like, there's some like blockage John... in my stomach where it's like I cannot physically watch the Lord of the Rings films now. And I remember there were things like the the score, you know, that beautiful Howard Shore score yeah. from Lord of the Rings. When it's reused in The Hobbit and it's like decontextualized and putting these weird, it's like, like oh you like you broke the 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 thing I liked about the original like somehow by, you know, yeah. <laughs> you ruined it. You, somehow like you, you ruined it like by by reusing it and making it not as special and uh, anyway, but like the Cribs was such a Peter Jackson super fan. That was a thing of bonding for us when we first met that for the year leading up to the Lord of the Rings release, he did not watch a single movie. He was like, I'm going to be completely mentally cleared of cinema before I watch Lord of the Rings for real. And so for one year, he didn't watch anything, not on VHS, not in theaters. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy considering it's like, didn't you know what it was going to be? Like, didn't you know that it was going to be Lord of the Rings? Haven't you seen the fucking Bakshi fucking movies and The Hobbit and stuff? Didn't you know what this was going to be, John? Didn't you know little old Ian Holm was going to be all goblin-y in it? Speaking, keeping on the Ian Holm tip, <laughs> all, of the, all of the crossovers and connections we got on this. Let me, let, let me ask you this as sort of the final question to lead into it. And then we'll take we'll take the break. Do you think it's an important distinction between art and trash? Do you think it's actually important to distinguish between these two things? I think it's an important distinction for my sanity, maybe just to keep track of. You know, I, I mean, you gotta know what trash is because if you're holding up the trash, like it starts to turn into hoarding whether it's like physical hoarding or like some kind of psychological hoarding like some stuff you just gotta learn to let go of that if uh, you start stuffing your taxidermied pets and keeping them around you've gone crazy you're doing sure. something macabre <laughs> i mean it's funny uh the week that we we're recording this there was the whole uh debate over the nuki vhs tapes which i managed to admit all i know is there's okay. a nuki who cares Anyway, exactly. who, who cares? <laughs> but I, th I think even like going a step beyond that. No, movie... explain what it is, because I don't actually okay, know. All right. I got okay, the impression. So, uh... Here's my impression of what it is. There was a movie that all of the tapes got destroyed of it and it's lost now. But there's digital scans. So is it really lost? Uh, not not even that. I mean, the fine folks at Red Letter Media, they've been collecting Nuki tapes from people 
what's what's red letter media Red Letter Media. it's a it's a popular youtube channel where um they got famous for the mr plinkett star wars critique which is what's is mr plinkett one of the guys it, there it's a, it's a character that, that in, one of in star plays. wars actually two of them plays it's a it's no. a character in star oh Oh my okay. god, this is so hard to explain. <laughs> but it, it was a it was a review that became popular and it it was it's both a critique of the film and also sort of making fun of nitpicky video critiques of films at the same time. And okay. there's a lot of dark humor mixed in. It's it's a wonderful like feature length. Feature length. Jesus yeah. Christ. Every time somebody's like, watch this thing on YouTube, I pull it up and it's some guy talking about it, space balls for 45 minutes. And I'm well, like, that, space balls is of... only an hour and a half long. All right, well, the, the, the Mr. Plinkett character, like, I, I'm going way, way too deep into this, but like, it's... Uh... Sorry, I asked. <laughs> it's okay. No, well, the, the character is like a serial killer and he's uh, keeping women in the basement. And like, at the same time, he's going on and on about like, dissecting the minutiae of the star wars prequels yeah and you know it sort of mixes authentic observations about why those films don't work with also just like insanity and yeah. um, and that blew up and they have a youtube channel where they regularly discuss films and uh one of the things they they would are they do... are they like movie goofs style like goofing on bad movies guys i i think they're they're in that wheelhouse, but I, I think they're an example that I, I actually kind of take seriously and enjoy because okay. I, I think a lot of what they do highlights the absurdity around that. I, I think they they sound like something I would detest, but go you, on. You, you might. But Let's like, get back on anyway, track. All right. So they've had this uh, collection growing of this uh, South African ET knockoff called Nuki. Yeah. And they made a video where they discussed this boom in a VHS speculator market, how it's probably all completely artificial with a bunch of people grading VHS tapes, which is a stupid idea. And, uh, you know, wait, like the way you grade like trading cards? Yes, that, that's a but thing. But VHS, VHS tests right, right. degrade let, let me naturally. Finish, let me okay, sorry, go on. Okay. The, the idea of people grading VHS tapes is obviously extremely stupid, right? Yes. And um, the idea of collecting them and putting great value on VHS tapes and saying, well, like this one's still in its package, like regardless of whether the tapes work or not is of course yeah. ludicrous, right? But, you know, you have this speculator market show up now and it's probably completely fake with a bunch of people selling back and forth, uh, amongst themselves to artificially create this market and exploit it the way that you have with uh, trading cards and all these things. Uh, so the gentleman at Red Letter Media wanted to highlight this. They they bring attention to it and they decide that, okay, we're going to take our Nuki tape and get it graded. We're going to pick the, the best one just to see like how uh, the, this grading process works. And we're going to destroy all the others to increase its value, they say as a joke. Yeah. Uh, which, like, obviously, like, they don't have all the tapes of Nuki in the world. Yeah. First of all, you know. Uh, so they said, you know, we're going to destroy all the other. But that reminds me of, um, of if, if famously in the 80s or 90s, there's a Japanese supermarket chain that bought a ton of Rembrandts and just put them in a vault 
to increase their scarcity and increase their value. And so shit like that actually happens and on a much more horrendous big scale. Well, I'm I'm not even finished yet. Yeah. Uh, So they're throwing all these uh, Nuki tapes into like a wood chipper and it's really wonderful to see them like destroying all these (laughs) tapes shredding them and then they said well you know we're going to put up the the one that was graded uh still in the package nuki tape up for auction on ebay and whatever it makes we're going to donate to children's hospital and animal shelter yeah sort of highlight how it's stupid and it raised um i think it ended up raising like eighty thousand dollars it turned into like a big thing but a lot of people were like furious that they destroyed all these vhs tapes and they're like you're destroying culture this is as bad as book burning yet you know and then one of them had to come out and say like vhs is an inherently terrible archival medium these things are worthless yeah (laughs) basically that's what what they're trying to point out is that all this stuff is just uh worthless yeah and i i think like there is sort of a disconnect, you know, again, like talking about the difference between like a, something with personality and an object. Like, I think people, people don't realize like the VHS tape is not the film. You yeah. know, maybe the film exists somewhere in a, a salt mine or in an archive or somewhere, but like your VHS copy is like a VHS tape is not the movie. You're not destroying the movie when you destroy a VHS tape, yeah. which is like also like a terrible archival medium. But this, people like but to this think is... that there's a, this is fascinating. Things. This is fascinating in the context of the story of Stuff of Madness, yes. which is about there's something unhealthy about the inability to accept that your pets die, things die, culture dies, things move on, your love dies, your affairs die, and they're gone forever. And the the stuff of madness is the inability to accept that, the inability to accept that your pet is dead and have this uh, deranged facsimile of it reared up in the garden to have poor Mau Mau being used as a target by the other dogs and have this like piss riddled ruined facsimile of your of your shih tzu in your garden right and also to not understand that louise is not a mannequin louise is gone to not be able to accept that that she's got her doctor husband there in america that's that's madness that's part of the madness and it's unhealthy to not be able to accept that humanity is not eternal your own life is not eternal culture is not eternal right that doesn't mean you shouldn't want to fight and preserve these things and want them but at the same time i feel like when i see a lot of these hoarding and collecting type behaviors that it's about an inability to process life and emotions and existence in a very basic fundamental human way it's this sort of desperate need to fight against an inevitability that's thoughtless it feels totally sublimated activity it feels totally unhealthy in the way that keeping a, a garden full of pets is unhealthy and then you go well what's unhealthy about that if she wants to taxidermy her pets and keep them in the garden and you go well the only thing unhealthy about it is that it's overtly deranged and unhealthy you know if you're trying to articulate it that's part of what it's about and i don't think like that theme is sort of there in collection completed of the the difference between stuffed animals and real things you know and that if you don't understand that difference you've truly gone nuts 
like she doesn't at the end of, of the of the the punchline of it as you yeah. say is that she's we know she's gone nuts because she's just as happy with the stuffed guy as the living one you know um although i think there's a neat irony where it's like she should obviously be happier with the stuffed version of her husband the real one sucked so, yeah. yeah the real one sucked shit you know um yeah it's so uh you know i just listening to all that it, it always feels like anytime you uh it just feels like the dominant waves of voices in uh the film world in particular, maybe not the total arts world, feels like so many unhealthy people, feels like so many psychologically unhealthy people. It just does. Immature people, people who never learned how to put away childish things, people who think as a child, people I mean, who, it's funny, a lot who don't of know who get that, the um, difference between art and trash, but go on. Like a lot of people who get very touchy about the destruction of trash are actually fine with the destruction of art. Like you've yeah. seen some of the same people who are like, yeah, you know, you could you could rip apart a Rembrandt if it means uh, drawing yeah. attention to this particular cause. Who are like clutching their pearls over <laughs> the destruction of like nuky VHS tapes? You know, I think yeah. like there's some kind of a disconnect there. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, talking about trash TV. This is literal trash TV, but the show Hoarders, and you see how defensive people get when somebody comes to try to clear out their hoard, and even yeah. stuff that's very obviously trash people can get extremely defensive about like no this has value this has value to me i can resell this i can somebody gave that to me it's the, yada the, yada the first time i ever encountered hoarding in college a friend of mine uh she was making a documentary about her grandmother who was a hoarder and i had never mm -hmm. heard of this before in my life and we went to her house and it was just room after room full of garbage bags full of stuff and she would go to the flea market and buy stuff and bring stuff home and take stuff to the flea market and it was um to me it was weird as a kid it actually didn't register as crazy it was like oh she's taking stuff and bringing it back i'm sure there's interesting things in these bag being a collector myself when i was young of things and i look back and uh my friend was like this is horrible this is so depressing to see my grandmother live like this this is i i'm desperate i don't know what to do and i and i didn't get it until she had literally said like no this is horrible this is a horrible way to live there's something wrong with her you know and this is and this is a symptom of the wrongness you know and most people don't hoard in that very extreme way that you can make a reality show out of but i think like a lot of us do it to some extent and are defensive about it in in similar ways i mean you know, you look at the pushback to somebody like Marie Kondo, who's like, hey, maybe you should just keep the stuff that's important to you. And it's like, how dare you? <laughs> you people flip out about her people. shit. I mean, yeah. I think part of that is that she's a very unlikable person. She's a certain <laughs> kind of irritating person that rubs you the wrong way. I think if it was coming from if it was if it was, you know, um, fucking uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a less controversial figure. I was going to say Brett Favre, but if it's, if it was, you know, if it's fucking, you know, if it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar being like, or Bill Walton be like, Hey, maybe clean out your house and keep the stuff that's important. I think those same people would be like, huh, maybe he's right. But it's this very kind of super irritating, dislikable person saying it. You're like, <laughs> fuck you. I'm keeping it. You know? <laughs> um, and it's um, and and but also one 
other thing I'd want to say about Highsmith is she's a very unhealthy person and her and her work is, I think, valuable for being the expression of an unhealthy mind, for being the expression. Talk about hoarding. She was a snail collector. She loved snails and, and slugs, and she would smuggle them on international flights below her sagging breasts. She would hide her snails on flights because she wasn't allowed to bring them in between countries. And just would bring them to dinner at like fancy restaurants and pour them out on the table, knowing she's like an important person and dare anybody to say anything as they like slithered around the table and stuff. So this is a deranged human being. And that's like her charming qualities. Her bad qualities are really fucking bad. Right. But I think that that sort of this expression, genuine, sincere expression of a unhealthy mind is valuable too. that 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 somehow pushes it into the realm of art the expression of a disordered mind somehow becomes art you know it's the henry darger thing that 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 somehow ends up there i mean henry darger that that's like real outsider art it, it's like getting a work of art from somebody somebody who lived in another dimension almost yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's really that's really outside the <laughs> <laughs> you know but again if you're talking about like sincere expressions of something a person sees as true like you know henry darger that's exactly what that is that's somebody who is is completely deranged but also being completely kind of sincere and i don't, it, it's also interesting whenever you get these like filmmakers who are not like necessarily great artists but doing something sort of hyper sincere from a place that is like weird or off you know you get some really interesting works of art i mean a lot of them end up in that like so bad it's good kind of conversation well that's what you i always say people like... neil breen people love neil breen and yeah. i and my only reaction to him is if he had enough money and a writing staff there'd be nothing be artistic like a... interesting no. about him he's but... this is this is only interesting because it's failing to be what he wants it to be you know, yeah. that's that's the only thing that's interesting about this. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's some people like uh, like a Tommy Wiseau. I always wonder, you know, if you had um, if you had like a third act on the room where it it like turns into a Mulholland Drive type thing, where it's <laughs> like the real guy who nobody likes, who's go you know, if it was like that for the last twenty minutes of the movie, and then he shoots himself, and then you realize like, oh, the whole thing was just his like dream version of america like if it was but, but at the same time film i don't know at the, at the same time <laughs> a lot of the so bad it's good was what we were talking about earlier yeah. with this is mysterious this is a yes. space where you are wondering about intent this is a space where you wonder what's happening inside of them it's a space you yourself as an audience yeah. can dream inside of because you've been allowed into an incoherent psychological space you know in in some circumstances Although plenty of so bad it's good is just laugh at these people who like, yeah. I guarantee had made a movie that would be better than any fucking movie. 90 percent, 99 percent of that I think audience like, would again, make. Like a, a lot of the a lot of the filmmakers and artists who get targeted for that stuff are actually like, I think, pretty competent. I mean, I always think of um, like what, one good example, famous example is uh, Edward Wood Jr. Yeah. Who. um like I remember finding it like people were making fun of like oh you can see the boom mic in the frame and, yeah and reading like, you can oh, in Fassbender's films okay, too well, 
there's right, Mike, but, but there's also light finding stands like, in Berlin Alexanderplatz. I, Sorry, I, go on. But then finding out like, oh, like these films were shown like improperly matted. Oh. And like people were like, you know, making fun of this thing that was like really nothing to do with the filmmaker. And, but again, like if you're talking about like showing C stands in the background, I feel like, like that's not what's important to a work of art is, is that, it's completely irrelevant. It's yeah. irrelevant. Like, uh, again, like I was watching Ophuls last week. So I watched uh, La Ronde and like one of my favorite moments in that film, you get this like, I mean, the whole thing is set up as as being like, hey, movies are fake, but they can still make you feel something, you know, and yeah. you get that really like incredible moment with the camera spinning around where he flips the camera and you see the, the edge of the set and you see the lights in the C-stand and he's like, you know, for somebody who's very, really famous for the mise-en-scene and all that stuff, yeah. it's almost like him saying, like, yeah, none of that shit really matters. <laughs> What's yeah. ma- what matters is is what you feel, what you think, being in that moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of, like, that intimacy is, is more important than any of the the textures that people kind of fixate on. But I think that that's, I think that's an interesting art versus trash distinction, is that the artist who says what matters is what you think and what you feel, those are going to be Ophuls and Fassbender. And the P and the artists who say what matters is how it looks, how slick it is, how well put it together is that stuff is actually trash a lot of the time. Sure. That that's a funny thing. That trash is both identifiably the the incompetent underfunded stuff of the world but also the overfunded and soulless stuff of the world. It's it's a funny thing yeah. in that way these films that come out every year and uh, people seem to like them and, you know, they make money and maybe they make, maybe they even get a couple of awards and then you forget they exist. You know, that, well, that's, that's, like the that's isn't that, trash, like the, isn't that, isn't the, the big elephant in the room for our era right now, then avatar, which oh, the first yeah, one, absolutely. when everybody talks about it having no <laughs> cultural impact and the new one having no cultural impact. I I've heard a lot of people make the joke that this must be a money laundering scheme is what it <laughs> seems like, because it's really like, Everybody I know has seen Avatar. Nobody has a single thought about it other than I liked it. It was great. Did you see it? That is the only conversation I've had about it. I say, no, I haven't seen it. And they say, I'll go see it. I say, what's good? And they're like, it's just, it's fun. Good time at the movies. I, I feel like the just real tell me one thing about it. Is, yes, is like people saying it's got no cultural impact every week for, <laughs> for decades straight. Like there's nothing else to really see there. But, but it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think like to, to sort of extend the metaphor we've been dancing around, I think like, you know, if you talk about whether it's an important distinction to make between art and trash, I feel like when you start keeping trash movies work in the culture and try to continually prop it up and put a spotlight on it and say like, oh, no, this is really like important or art or like bully people into taking it seriously like i think that's the you know the sort of cultural equivalent of putting your taxidermied animals all over the place you know yeah whereas whereas if you let it die and you bury it a grave becomes sacred ground the propping it up is ridiculous mm-hmm. you know and i think that that's something to consider you know uh, about it is that that something can become sacred in death in trying to prolong it's into eternal grotesque life you make it disgusting and pathetic 
you know i think, I, that I think that's, that's a really true good too. point yeah um yeah. should let's end on that note let's end on that what did, did <laughs> keep, we solve that it culture moving uh did we did it's we crack the case to stay alive it's like a shark you know you gotta <laughs> you gotta keep moving what, what's the, i was thinking about that uh, mark twain quote um God, it's, it's like don't don't mistake motion for progress <laughs> you know it's a very good yeah <laughs> anyway um that's each of our episodes is going to end with did we crack the case or not martin did we crack the case i think we cracked the case i feel pretty good about this <laughs> i think i think case closed i'm putting it into the detective case files of kessler and funderburg <laughs> the pulpy adventures <laughs> <laughs> true art like a Columbo episode. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for doing the episode, Martin Kessler. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Bye.